Chapter Ten, Part Two of Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Ten, Part Two. As her adversary went down, the Merrimac turned slowly to menace the Congress with the same swift destruction. She took no notice of the harmless cannonade from the shore. Lieutenant Smith, who commanded the Congress, had realized that collision with the enemy meant destruction, rapid and inevitable, and decided that his best chance was to get into shoal water under the batteries. He had slipped his cable, shaken out some of his sails, and signaled to the tugboat Zouave to come to his help. The Zouave made fast to the Congress on the land side, but she had not moved far when the ship grounded within easy range of the Merrimack's guns. These were already in action against her. The leading ship of the seaward Federal Squadron, the frigate Minnesota, had come in within long range and opened on the Merrimack and the gunboats, but she had only fired a few shots when she also ran aground on the edge of the main channel, but in such a position that some of her guns could still be brought to bear. Taking no notice of this more distant foe, the Merrimack devoted all her attention to the Congress. She sent a broadside into the stranded frigate, and then passing under her stern, raked her fore and aft and set her on fire. Lieutenant Smith of the Congress was badly wounded. Lieutenant Prendergast, who succeeded to the command, decided that with his ship aground and the enemy able quietly to cannonade her without coming under fire of most of his guns, to prolong the fight would be to waste life uselessly. After consulting his wounded chief, he dipped his colors and displayed a white flag. The little Zouave cast off from the frigate, and as she cleared her, fired a single shot from her one gun at the Merrimack, and then ran down to the Minnesota. This shot led afterwards to a false report that the Congress had reopened fire treacherously after surrendering. Civil war has often been described as fatricidal, and this action between the Congress and the Merrimack, two brothers were opposed to each other. Commodore Buchanan, who commanded the Merrimack, knew, when he attacked the Congress, that a younger brother of his was a junior officer of the frigate. The younger man escaped unscathed, but the Commodore was slightly wounded during the fight. When the Congress struck her colors, Buchanan ordered two of the gunboats to take off her crew. Her flag was secured to be sent to Richmond as a trophy. While the gunboats Raleigh and Beaufort were taking off the Federal wounded, there came from the batteries on shore a heavy fire of guns and rifles. Several of the wounded and two officers of the Raleigh were killed, and the gunboats drew off, leaving most of the crew of the Congress still on board. They escaped to the shore in boats and by swimming. Meanwhile, the Merrimack fired a number of red-hot shot into her, and she was soon ablaze fore and aft. Then the ironclad turned and fired at the Minnesota. The sun was going down, and the tide was running out rapidly. 
The deep draft of the Merrimack made the risk of grounding, if she closely engaged the Minnesota, a serious matter. So Buchanan signaled to the gunboats to cease fire, and, accompanied by them, steamed over to the south side of the roads, where he anchored for the night under the Confederate batteries, intending to complete the destruction of the Federal fleet next morning. The first day's fight was over. It had been a battle between the old and the new, between a steam-propelled armored ram and wooden sailing ships. The Cumberland had been sunk, the Congress forced to surrender and set on fire, and the Minnesota was hopelessly aground and marked down as the first victim for next day. The Federals had lost some two hundred men, the Confederates only twenty-one. Buchanan was wounded, not severely, but seriously enough for the command of the Merrimack to be transferred to Lieutenant Jones. As night came on, the moon rose, but the wide expanse of water was lighted up, not by her beams only, but also by the red glare from the burning Congress. The flames ran up her tarred rigging like rocket trails. Masks and spars were defined in flickers of flame. At last, with a deafening roar that was heard for many a mile, she blew up, strewing the roads with scattered wreckage. At ten o'clock that evening, while the Congress was still burning, a strange craft had steamed into the roads from the sea, all unnoticed by the Confederates. She anchored in the shallow water between the Minnesota and the shore. Her light draft enabled her to go into waters where less powerful fighting ships would have grounded. To use the words of one who first saw her as the sun rose next day, she looked like a plank afloat with a can on top of it. She was Ericsson's ironclad turret ship, the Monitor. In the first weeks of the war, inventors had besieged the United States Navy Department with proposals for the construction of ironclad warships. The department was still leisurely debating as to what policy should be adopted when news came that the Merrimack, half burnt at Norfolk Yard, was being reconstructed as an armored ram, and it became urgent to provide an adversary to meet her on something like equal terms. It was at this moment that John Erickson came forward with his offer to construct an armored light-draft turret ship which could be very rapidly built and put in commission. This last point was of cardinal importance, for reports said that work on the Merrimack was far advanced, and no ship could be built on ordinary lines of sufficient power to meet her in the time available. The vessel must be of light draft to work in the shallow coast waters, creeks, and river mouths of the southern states. She might have to fight in narrow channels where there would not be room for maneuvering to bring broadside guns to bear. Ericsson, therefore, proposed that her armament should be a pair of heavy guns mounted in a turret, which could be revolved so as to point them in any direction, independently of the position of the ship itself. The whole was to be formed of two portions, a kind of barge-like structure, or lower hull, built of iron and mostly under water when the ship was afloat, and fixed over this the upper hull, a raft-like structure, wider and longer, and with overhanging armored sides and lighter deck armor. The dimensions were 
Upper part of the hull, length 172 feet, beam 41 feet. Lower hull, length 122 feet, beam 34 feet. Depth, underside of deck to keel plate, 11 feet 2 inches. Draft of water, 10 feet. Engines and boilers were aft, and the long overhang of the armored deck astern protected the underwater rudder and screw propeller. In the overhang at the bow there was a well in which the anchor hung underwater. Forward, near the bow, there was a small armored pilot house, or as we now call it, conning tower. Amidships, in an armored turret, were mounted two heavy smoothbore guns of large caliber and throwing a round, solid shot. The conning tower was built of solid iron blocks nine inches thick. The sight holes were narrow, elongated slits. This was the helmsman's station. The committee to which Ericsson's plans were referred was at first hostile. Some of the members declared that the ship would not float, that her deck would be under water, and that she would be swamped at once. Further objections were that no crew could live in the underwater part of the hull. But at length all objections were met, and the Swedish engineer was told that his plans were accepted, and that a regular contract would be drawn up for his signature. Ericsson knew the value of time, and before the contract was ready the keel plates of his turret ship had been rolled, and a dozen firms had started work on her various parts. While the ship was being built, he proposed she should be named the Monitor, and the name became a general term for low freeboard turret ships. The keel of the ship was laid at Greenpoint Yard, Brooklyn, in October 1861. She was launched on 30 January 1862. The work of completing and fitting was carried on day and night, and she was commissioned for service on 25 February 1862. But even when her crew were on board, there were a number of details to be completed. Workmen were busy on her almost up to the moment of her departure from New York Harbor nine days later, so there was no chance of drilling the men and testing the guns and turret. Lieutenant Worden, United States Navy, was promoted to the rank of captain and given command. He formed a crew of volunteers for what was considered a novel and exceptionally dangerous service. Officers and men numbered fifty-eight in all. On the morning of Thursday, 6 March, two days before the Merrimack's attack on the Cumberland, the Monitor left New York in tow of the tug Seth Lowe, bound for Hampton Roads. The two days' voyage southward along the coast was an anxious and trying time, and though the weather was not really bad, the Monitor narrowly escaped foundering at sea. At 4 p.m. on the Saturday she was off Cape Henry, and the sound of a far-off cannonade was heard in the direction of Hampton Roads. The officers rightly guessed that the Merrimack was in action. It was after dark that the turret ships steamed up the still water of the landlocked bay amid the red glare from the burning Congress. She anchored beside the United States warship Roanoke. On board the fleet, which eagerly watched her arrival, there was general disappointment and depression at seeing how small she was. 
Warden shifted his anchorage in the night, and taking advantage of the monitor's light draft, steamed up the roads, and anchored his ship in the shallow water to landward of the stranded Minnesota. There was not much sleep on board the monitor that night, tired as the men were. At 2 a.m. the Congress blew up in a series of explosions. After that the men tried to settle down to rest, but before dawn all hands were roused to prepare for the coming fight. A little after 7 a.m. the Merrimack was seen steaming slowly across the bay, escorted by her flotilla of gunboats. She was coming to complete the destruction of the United States squadron, and had marked down the Minnesota as her first victim, in blissful ignorance of the arrival of the Monitor. Worden realized that if he allowed the fight to take place near the stranded ship, the Merrimack might engage him with one of her broadsides, and use the other to destroy the Minnesota. He therefore steamed boldly out into open water, challenging the Confederate ram to a duel. As he approached, the wooden gunboats prudently turned back and ran under the shelter of the Confederate batteries on the south shore, leaving the Merrimack to meet the Monitor in single combat. So that Sunday morning, 9 March, 1862, saw the first battle between ironclad ships, with north and south soldiers, sailors, and civilians anxiously watching the combat from the ships in the roads and the batteries on either shore. Warden was in the pilot house with a quartermaster at the wheel and a local pilot to assist him. His first lieutenant, Dana Green, commanded the two 11-inch guns in the turret. The Merrimack was the first to open fire. Warden waited to reply till he was at close quarters, then stopped his engines, let his ship drift, and sent the order by speaking tube to the turret, Commence firing! The monitor's turret swung round, and her two guns roared out, enveloping both ships in a fog of powder smoke, as the huge cannonballs crashed on the slipping armor of the Merrimack. They did not penetrate it, but the theory of the northern artillerists was that the hammering of heavy round shot on an enemy's armor would start the plates, shear bolts and rivet heads, and crush in the wooden backing, and so gradually succeed in making a breach in the armor somewhere. But throughout this fight at close quarters, the Merrimack's cuirass remained intact. The southern ship was replying with a much more rapid fire from her broadside guns. Hit after hit thundered on the monitor's turret, but its platings held good, though the sensation of being thus pummeled was anything but pleasant to the men inside. At an early stage of the fight, a quartermaster was disabled in a startling way. He was leaning against the inside of the turret when a shot struck it just outside. The momentary yielding of the plating to the blow passed on the shock to the man's body, and he fell stunned and collapsed and had to be carried below. Although the speaking tube from the conning tower to turret was inside the armored deck, a similar action of a shot that did not penetrate, smashed it up, and after this the orders had to be passed with difficulty by a chain of men. And this was not the only trouble the crew of the Monitor had to contend with. But the Monitor, with all her defects, 
had the great advantage over the Merrimac of a slightly greater speed and of a much greater handiness. Her turning circle was much smaller than that of the larger ship, and she could choose her position and invade with comparative ease any attempt of her clumsy adversary to ram and run her down. The Merrimac, with her damaged funnel and diminished draft on her furnaces, found it even more difficult than on the previous day to get up speed. At times she was barely moving. Her depth was also a drawback in the narrow channel. While the light draft monitor could go anywhere, the Merrimac, drawing twenty-two feet of water, was more than once aground and was got afloat again after many anxious efforts. The monitor had a good supply of solid shot, the Merrimac very few, for she had been sent out not to fight an armor-clad, but to destroy a wooden fleet. Finding that a shell-fire was making no impression on the monitor's turret, and recognizing the difficulty of ramming his enemy, Commander Jones made up his mind to disregard the monitor for a while, and attempt to complete the destruction of the Minnesota. He therefore ordered his pilot to steer across the roads, and take up a position near the stranded frigate. The pilot afterwards confessed that he was more anxious about facing the rapid fire of the Minnesota's numerous guns, than standing the more deliberate attack to the monitor's slow fire. He could have brought the Merrimack within half a mile of the Minnesota, but he made a wide detour, and ran aground two miles from the Federal ship. When, after great effort, the ironclad was floated again, the pilot declared he could not take her any nearer the Minnesota without grounding again, and Commander Jones reluctantly turned to renew the duel with the monitor, which had been steaming slowly after him. The monitor's officers thought the Merrimack was running away from them, and were surprised when she closed with their ship again. Once more there was a fight at close quarters. Those who watched the battle could make out very little of what was happening, for the two ships were wrapped in clouds of powder smoke and blacker smoke from their furnaces. The Merrimack's funnel was down, and the smoke from her furnace room was pouring low over her casement. In the midst of the semi-darkness, Jones tried to ram the turret ship and nearly succeeded. Worden, using the superior handiness of his little vessel, converted the direct attack into a glancing blow, but the Confederates thought that if they had not lost the iron wedge of their ram the day before in sinking the Cumberland, they could have sunk the monitor. The turret ship now kept a more respectful distance. For more than a quarter of an hour she did not fire a shot. The Confederates hoped they had permanently disabled her, but what had happened was that the Monitor had ceased fire in order to pass a supply of ammunition up into the turret, which could not be revolved while this was being done. Presently the Monitor began firing again. Jones of the Merrimack now changed his target. Despairing of seriously damaging the Monitor's turret, he concentrated his fire on her conning tower, and before long this plan had an important result. Dana Green gives a vivid description of the incident. A shell struck the forward side of the pilot house directly in the sight hole or slit, and exploded, cracking the second iron log and partially lifting the top, leaving an opening. 
Warden was standing immediately behind this spot, and received in his face the force of the blow, which partially stunned him, and filling his eyes with powder, utterly blinded him. The injury was known only to those in the pilot-house and its immediate vicinity. The flood of light rushing through the top of the pilot-house, now partly open, caused Warden, blind as he was, to believe that the pilot-house was seriously injured, if not destroyed. He therefore gave orders to put the helm to starboard and sheer off. Thus the monitor retired temporarily from the action, in order to ascertain the extent of the injuries she had received. At the same time, Warden sent for me, and I went forward at once, and found him standing at the foot of the ladder leading to the pilot-house. He was a ghastly sight, with his eyes closed, and the blood apparently rushing from every pore in the upper part of his face. He told me that he was seriously wounded, and directed me to take command. I assisted in leading him to a sofa in his cabin, where he was tenderly cared for by Dr. Logg, and then I assumed command. Blind and suffering as he was, Warden's fortitude never forsook him. He frequently asked from his bed of pain of the progress of affairs, and when told that the Minnesota was saved, he said, Then I can die happy. In the confusion that followed the disablement of her commander, the monitor had drifted away from the Merrimack, but still in a position between her and the Minnesota. The Confederate ship fired at the temporarily disabled turret ship a few shots, to which there was no reply. Commander Jones and his officers believed they had put their opponent out of action, but the Merrimack was not in a position to profit by her advantage. It was near 2 p.m. The tide was running out rapidly, and the risk of grounding was serious. Ammunition was beginning to be scarce. The crew was exhausted, and the ship's pumps had to be kept going, for under the strain of the heavy firing and the repeated groundings during the two days, the hull was leaking badly. Jones judged the time had come to break off the action, and the Merrimack turned slowly, and began to steam into the Elizabeth River on her way back to Norfolk. The monitor, seeing her retiring, fired a few long-range shots after her. They splashed harmlessly into the water. So the famous fight ended. On board both ships no life had been lost, and only a few men were wounded, Captain Worden's case being the most serious. In fact, there were fewer casualties than on the first day, when the loss of life in the wooden ships had been serious, and the Merrimack, despite her armor, had had twenty-one men killed and wounded by the lighter projectiles of the Cumberland and Congress finding their way into her casement through the portholes. Neither ship had suffered severe injury, though if the battle had continued, the damage done to the conning tower of the Monitor might have had serious results. When the Merrimack was docked at Gosport Yard, Norfolk, to be overhauled and repaired, it was found that she had ninety-seven indentations in her armor. Twenty of these were judged to be the marks of the monitor's eleven-inch balls. In these places, the outer layer of armor plating was cracked and badly damaged. The under layer and the wooden backing were uninjured. 
The other 77 marks were mere surface dents made by the lighter artillery of the wooden ships. The monitor had used reduced charges of 15 pounds of gunpowder, and it was believed that if the full charge of 30 pounds had been used, the results might have been more serious, but the Navy Department had ordered the reduced charge, as it was feared that with full charges the strain on the gun mountings and turret gear might be too severe. The Merrimack's funnel was riddled, and all outside fittings shot away. Two of her guns had been made unserviceable on the first day by shots striking their muzzles. Both sides claimed the victory in Sunday's battle. The Confederates claimed to have driven off the Monitor, and stated that Jones had waited for some time for her to renew the fight before he turned back to Norfolk. The Federals argued that the object of the Merrimack was to destroy the Minnesota, and the Monitor prevented this, and was therefore the victor. The frigate was successfully floated next tide. Sometimes the fight is described as a drawn battle, but most writers on the subject accept the federal contention and give the honors of the day to the little turret ship. The Battle of Hampton Roads was notable, however, not so much for its immediate results as for its effect on naval opinion and policy. It finally closed the era of unarmored ships. It led to a perhaps exaggerated importance being attached to the ram as a weapon of attack, and it led to a very general adoption of the armored turret, and for a while to the building of low freeboard turret ships in various navies. It was not till long after that the story of the Monitor's perilous voyage from New York was told. Even in America it was not realized that the Monitor type was fit only for smooth waters and was ill-adapted for seagoing ships. On the Federal side, there was a kind of enthusiasm for the Monitor. Numbers of low freeboard turret ships of somewhat larger size and with improved details were built for the United States, and even the failure of Admiral Dupont's Monitor fleet in the attack on the Charleston's batteries did not convince the Navy Department that the type was defective. Erickson's building of the Monitor to meet the emergency of 1862 was a stroke of genius, but its success had for a long time a misleading effect on the development of naval construction in the United States. The Merrimack was abandoned and burned by the Confederates a few weeks later, when they evacuated Norfolk and the neighborhood. At the end of the year, the Monitor was ordered to Charleston. She started in tow of a powerful tug, but the fate she had so narrowly escaped on her first voyage overtook her. She was caught in a gale off Cape Hatteras on the evening of 31 December, 1862. The tow ropes had to be cut, and shortly after midnight the Monitor sank ten miles off the Cape. Several of her officers and men went down with her. The rest were rescued by the tug with great difficulty. Had the wind blown a little harder during the Monitor's first voyage from New York, or had the tow rope to which she hung parted, there is no doubt she would have gone down in the same way. In that case the course of history would have been different, for the Merrimack would have been undisputed master of the Atlantic coast, and have driven off or destroyed every ship of the blockading squadrons. 
the fate of nations sometimes depend on trifles that of the american union depended for some hours on the soundness of the hawser by which the monitor hung on to the tugboat seth low of new york end of chapter ten part two